arm, wiping off the gloves. Hard left and the right combination. What is keeping him up, Bill? I don't know. Can't even get his gloves up to protect him. Ryan, he's the princess now, Bill. Down, down, stay down. Paulo dancing around with his arms in the air. Everybody knows the name of Rocky, right? It's one of those rare movies that uh, you just see even the first five seconds. You know what the movie is all about. You know who played Rocky. You know about the sequels. You certainly know the theme song. Uh, how many of you have ever been to Philadelphia? Some of you have. Well, I'm just going to be honest. I've been to Philadelphia one time. Guess what I did? I ran up those steps just like Rocky. I did the deal, right? I mean, we all kind of we, we all can kind of relate to that movie, and I've often thought, why is the Rocky movies, why even to this day, that movie was made 40 years ago, 40 years ago that first movie was made, and yet it's still popular even with young people, people love Rocky, why are we so enamored with Rocky, and I got to thinking about it, and I think it's because maybe life is a lot like that, I mean, even if you're not a boxing fan, I mean, the whole idea of being the underdog, getting knocked down, getting back up, Winning against all odds. You know, the, the whole spirit of I'm never going to quit. I still believe I can win. I know the whole world's against me, but I really believe I can pull this off. There's something that we just resonate with that because we realize life is a battle. It's a war. Every day you go to war. And, and if you're a Christian especially, you fight to do right every day. You, you know that's true. I mean, we, we, we get into this battle. And that's why we're in this series that we're calling Real Grace. And by the way, the word real is spelled with two E's, not E and A. It's, it's like a movie because we've been saying that when you read the book of Romans, it doesn't just read like a book. It really could be made into a movie. It's got everything. It's got a director. His name is Paul. He's an apostle. It's got a great setting, the world. It's got a great supporting cast, you and me. The plot is so thick with conflict. You've got law, you've got sin, you've got grace, you've got temptation, you've got evil. Can you do it? Maybe you can't do it. And then you've got this hero, and it's Jesus. 
And, and he's the one that kind of brings resolution to all of this. And, and one of the reasons why I love the book of Romans and it's one of my favorite books is because no other book in the entire Bible makes the case for grace anywhere near as deeply or eloquently or strongly or clearly as the book of Romans. So let me just kind of, if this is your first time here, you maybe have a short memory, don't remember, listen, I get that. I don't remember what I preached last week. So I, I get it if you're in that boat. Let me kind of go back and, and, and kind of summarize what we've learned so far. What we've been saying in this whole, whole series is we all need grace. Everybody's in need of grace. Every race needs amazing grace. Why? Because we're all sinners. We, we are all born in sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. We learned last week that we're sinners because we were born that way. Everybody on planet Earth is born with a spiritual defect. We were born with a sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're just naturally born to sin. You don't have to teach kids to do what's wrong. You ought to teach kids to do what's right. And then we've been learning that the good news throughout all of this is, is that the dam of sin cannot hold back the flood of grace through Jesus Christ. So, so far, so good. And then we come to the sixth chapter of Romans, and Paul confronts a real problem. As a matter of fact, he's going to take basically two chapters to talk about this problem that we deal with. And here is the problem. All this news that I've given you is true and it's good. Born in sin, can't help but sin. We do sin. And yet we know that Jesus died for our sin. And we know that we now have the grace of God. But here's the problem. Sin still continues. Even after you give your life to Jesus, you're not finished with sin. And even though a person who trusts Christ is completely forgiven, totally justified, and exonerated from all sin, we still deal with sin. Temptation never goes away. As a matter of fact, let, let me tell you something. If you're a new believer, let me just clue you in on something. It gets worse. It doesn't get better. And one of the reasons is, is because before you become a believer, you and Satan are on the same side. You and sin are on the same side. But once you give your life to Jesus, now you've got an enemy. And that enemy is not, a, that enemy's not happy. He's kind of upset, like an upset hornet at a picnic. And he doesn't like the fact that you're now against him. Sin doesn't like the fact you're now against it. So it really kind of gets more serious. And what's very discouraging for a pastor is to talk with so many believers so many Christians, and they really are, but they live in spiritual defeat. There, there are many of you, you're, you're watching on, by, by, by television, and you're listening by a computer, you're here today, and, and, and you're sitting there, and you are so discouraged because you do love Jesus, and you really want to obey Jesus, but there's this one sin you just can't seem to get over. There's this one sin you just can't seem to whip. There, there's, this, there's this one, call it a spiritual bully. And, and, and you're just absolutely convinced you just can't get over this sin. And even though we've been forgiven of our sin for some reason, we just can't seem to get free from our sin. And what's really frustrating is we came to, seem to keep falling into this same sin trap over and over and over Again, because Christians look at pornography too. 
And Christians have bitterness too. And Christians lust too. And Christians are jealous too. And Christians have a hard time controlling their temper too. And so if you came here today, whether you, and by the way, you may say, look, I'm not even a believer. And I, I, I'm that way. I really want to do right, but I just can't seem to get it together. There's just certain things I just can't seem to get free of. Well, then this message is for you. Because we, if you're like me, there are certain things and you just say, I, I just get tired of doing that one thing or those two things over and over and over. I, I was reading uh, a fascinating true story. You'll love this. True story, in fact, it has to do with boxing. There was a, there was a boxer back in the 1930s. His name was C.D. Blaylock. They called him Big Boy. He was, a, he was a Louisiana State University boxer. He was a college boxer. And they called him Big Boy because he was six feet, six inches tall. Now, 80 years ago, that was really big. Of course, still big today, but it was really big back, you know, 80 years ago. He was six feet, six inches tall. He was a giant of a man. He had never lost a fight. And he was fighting a little short, stocky boxer from Mississippi, Mississippi State, right? So they're in this college match. Well, when, it, when he got into the ring and he saw how, this, how short this guy was, even though he was kind of built, he thought, well, I'll make short work of him. This fight's not going to last very long. And so he said, I'll just knock him out quick. I'll make quick work of this kid. And so they, 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 they you know, they touch, touch gloves and the bell went off. And I mean, immediately, right off the bat, he comes with this roundhouse right. And he thinks, I'm just going to knock this guy completely. I'm going to knock him out of the ring. I'm going to be done. Well, as he went to hit this guy with this roundhouse right, this short guy stepped into him. And when he stepped into him, his head hit this guy's elbow and became like a, a lever and his fist whipped around and he hit himself in the chin. I mean, hit himself right in the chin, full force. He grabs the rope, staggered around, fell flat on his face, was totally knocked out. Not true story. He is the only boxer in history, amateur or pro, that ever knocked himself out with his own punch. Now, here's my question. Why do some of us, many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, why do we keep knocking ourselves out with the same old sin? Why is it it seems like, you know, I, I've got my jealousy under control, but I'm telling you, lust, it just gets me every day. Or, or, or why is it you say, you know, I, I got free from my alcohol problem, but pornography, I just can't get free from it. Or, or why is it we say, you know, I've, I've really gotten rid of my envy problem, but bitterness, I've got bitterness and I just can't get rid of my bitterness. Why is that? Well, that's where the sixth chapter of Romans comes in. So if you brought a copy of a Bible or iPad, smartphone, whatever, I want you to turn. We're in the book of Romans, chapter 6. Now, let, let me just say this, and I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, okay? And, and, and I, don't, I really don't want to, I don't like to hype messages because I don't like to get up every day and say, oh, this is the greatest message you're ever going to hear. But I'm going to kind of take a, take a chance and step out on a limb here. And I want to tell you today, especially if you are a believer, and potentially if you're not a believer, it will be very rare that I will preach more of a life changing, game-changing, transforming message than the message you're going to hear right now. If you're trapped in the net of pornography or anger or bitterness or lust or greed or selfishness 
or spiritual apathy or just fill in your own blank. I'm trapped in just fill in the blank. You can escape that trap. This chapter is so important. I'll tell you how important this chapter is. This is the only complete chapter in the Bible I had my three sons memorize when they were growing up. They didn't like it at the time. In fact, they were laughing about it when I told them I was going to talk about this. They were talking about how much they, I mean, they, I made them repeat this chapter until they were just sick of it. I'm going to show you why in just a moment. Someone has described the book of Romans as the emancipation proclamation of the Bible. And it probably, they say that because of this particular chapter. Because three times in this chapter, we read these words three different times in verses 17, 18, and 22, set free from sin. I want you to say that with me. Ready? Set free from sin. Okay? Now, three times Paul tells us, we, that is those of us who have given our lives to Christ, we believe in him, we have been set free from sin. So, if you have Jesus Christ living in you and you are living in him, Paul doesn't, he doesn't equivocate, he doesn't hesitate. He said, this is not a far debate. You have been freed from sin. You're free from the power of sin. You can win the battle of sin. The problem is too many believers don't even show up for the battle. And there are a lot of you, you used to show up for the battle, but you've gotten so discouraged, you've just kind of thrown in the towel. You've just kind of waved the white flag and you've just said to yourself, I just can't win this one battle against this one sin. Well, I've got news for you. According to what we're going to read today, if God tells the truth, we can rise up against sin. And in this chapter, we're going to discover the three secrets that Paul gives us on how to win against sin. Now, let me tell you how this is going to work, okay? Because you got to engage with me all throughout this message. The first secret to winning against sin has to do with your mind. The second secret to winning against sin has to do with your heart. And the third secret to winning against sin has to do with your will. So I believe, and I'm going to make a promise to you, and I don't make this often. I promise you, if you will believe what I'm about to tell you in the next 20 or 25 minutes, and if you will apply it in your life on a daily basis, your life, I'm not going to tell you it is going to radically change. It cannot help but radically change. But you've got to take all three steps. One won't work, two won't work. If you just do one out of three, it won't work. But if you take all three steps, I'm making a promise to you right now. There's not a sin in your life you cannot defeat, all right? Big promise, let's see what God says. Number one, you've got to receive victory. We've got to receive victory with our minds. That's where it all starts. We've got to receive victory with our minds. Now, four times in this chapter, Paul talks about something we need to know. And evidently, unfortunately, even Paul's readers, who are all Christians, there was a truth they either did not know or they had never yet learned that would set them free from sin. And you say, well, why is it so important that you know a truth? Why do you have to start with your mind? Do you remember what Jesus said about knowing truth? Here's what he said. He said, you will know the truth and the truth, what will the truth do? Set you free. So if you're enslaved to anything, Jesus himself said, first thing you got to do if you're going to be set free, there's something you need to know. You got to know truth. Well, where do you learn truth? You learn it in your mind. So, so uh, you, you can't do what's right until you know what's right. You know the old saying, what you don't know can hurt you. Well, in this case, what you don't know can kill you. 
Well, that raises a question. So what is it that Paul's telling us we need to know? Well, look down in verse 6. He says, for we know. We don't think, we don't believe, we don't feel. For we know that our old self, that is our old sinful nature, the old you you used to be, our old self was crucified with him. Obviously, that's Jesus. So that the body ruled by sin, this is how sin rules in you. It rules in your body. That's the tool that it uses. That the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has been died has been, let's say it together, set free from sin. All right? If you've died, and we'll talk about that in a moment, you've been set free from sin. Now, we're told two things, very simple. That you got to know right now, you've got to get this into your mind. You've got to change your whole mindset, okay? Here's the two things, if you're a believer, that we know. Number one, we are dead to sin, all right? I, I hate to do this, but I'm really going to make you engage. Let's say that together. We are dead to sin, all right? Number two, we are free from sin, all right? Let's say that together. We are free from sin. So when you walk out of this building today, you, there's one, whether you believe it or not, whether you, it doesn't matter. At least now you know two things about yourself if you're a believer in Jesus. You know that you're dead to sin, and you know that you are free from sin. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're sitting there right now, and you're saying, well, I just got a question here. When did that happen to me, and how did that happen to me? Well, Paul tells us. He said, we're told that the old self, that is the person we were before we met Jesus, our old sinful nature was crucified with him, crucified with Jesus. Now, that is such a big truth. You've got to get this into your mind. Okay, so I'm going to put this up on the screen. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only died for me, I died with him. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he not only died for me, I died with him. See, we've all heard this many, many times. You've heard this until you, I mean, you could, you've got it memorized. We've all heard when Jesus died, he paid for our sins. All right, we know that, we've heard that, and that's true. But we don't really understand the full truth of that statement. Because when Jesus died, he paid for our sins. But he not only paid the penalty for our sins, he also broke the power of sin. When you give your life to Jesus, the old you dies, a new you is born, and sin no longer has power over you. Now, in fact, let me, let me give you this thought. Jesus did not come just to save us from hell. You've heard this before. Salvation is not just fire insurance. He didn't just come to save us from hell. He came to save us from sin. Now, let me ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand, but because I, I know you agree with this. If you're a Christian, do you believe that when you give your life to Jesus, that when you trust him for your, as your Savior and receive him as your Lord, do you believe he will save you from hell? Do you believe that? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you say, well, yeah, I believe that. All right, now think about this. If Jesus can save you from hell, don't you think he can save you from sin? 
If he can't save you from one, what makes you think he can save you from the other? But if he can save you from one, why why wouldn't you believe he can save you from the other? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he gave us the power to die to our sins. See, I want you to see sin this way. way. You need to look at sin this way. Sin is a bully. And here's what sin will tell you. Sin will say, and you've heard, the, you've heard him say it many, many times, you can't beat me. You're, you're addicted to pornography. You know what that pornographic sin saying to you? You can't beat me. You're addicted to drugs or alcohol. You know what that pornographic uh, 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 sin is telling you? You know what that adulterous sin or that, or that bitter sin is telling you? You can't beat me. So you take whatever sin it is, you say, boy, I just cannot seem to overcome this. That sin's telling you right now, you can't beat me. You can't whip me. You may as well give in. You may as well give up because you know you're fighting a losing battle. And what Paul is telling, telling us right now is the moment you give your life to Jesus, sin is all talk. It's all talk. It has no power over you. Because so Paul goes on to say this down in verse 12. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of what? In light of the fact that when he died, I died. Therefore, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That's where sin reigns in your body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, this is a very strong statement. You ready for this? I'm talking to you if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, this is not for you right now. But if you are a believer, here's what Paul's telling you right now. Whether or not sin reigns over you, whether or not sin rules over you, whether or not sin is in charge of you is totally up to you. You make the call. Sin doesn't make the call. You make the call. It's all up to you. It can, and by the way, it can only take charge if you let it take charge. He says, look, you can rise up against sin. You can say this to sin, back off. You can say to sin, back down. You have that authority. You have that power to do that. But you've got to change your way of thinking. You you, you have got to get it into your mind that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, the power switch of sin has been turned completely off. You are free from sin. You are dead to sin. Now get this down. Sin is resident in you. It's in every one of us. Sin is resident in you. It is not president over you. There's a big difference. And too many of you are living like he's got the last say. Too many of you are living like he he makes the last call. Too many of you live like I just don't have any power against him. Just the opposite is true. That sin has no power over you unless you let it. So Paul goes on to say this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, when Jesus died for our sins, he was also raised to show he had power over sin. And likewise, when we give our life to Jesus, look, here's what happens. When we give our life to Jesus, the old you dies and you are raised a new you. Now, here's where we just don't get it. When you give your life to Jesus, he doesn't just do an extreme makeover. When you give your life to Jesus, he doesn't just remodel the old you or rebuild the old you. He renews you. You become a new you. You have a new nature. You've got a new owner. 
You are dead to sin. You are free from sin. When our, when our three sons were smaller and they were all going to school, I did this for years and years and years. In fact, I still do it sometime today. They're, they're in their 30s. When they were smaller and they were going to school, I'd always get them together and we'd have a little devotion. I'd pray with them. And then I would always ask each one of them this question. Who are you? And who do you belong to? And they always knew how to answer it. Well, I'm a merit and I belong to God. Then I would say, then you go out today and you act like it. You're a merit, that's right. You belong to God, that's right. Now you go out and you act like it. You act like you belong to, 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 to God and you act like your last name says you should. So you've got to get this into your mind right now. You are a child of God and you belong to Jesus. You are a child of God and you belong to Jesus. You are a child of God and you belong to Jesus. And because of who you are and because of where you are, you have power over any sin. But let me just stop right there. If already you've already convinced yourself, sounds good, I just don't believe it, I just can't buy it, you're whipped. No need to even listen. You can check, you can just check out and start playing, you know, crossword puzzles on your iPad because we're done. You've got to believe this in your mind. Number two, you've got to believe victory in your heart. Not just receive it in your mind. You've got to believe it in your heart. Now, Paul's already told us what we need to know in our mind. But if you're going to really have it make a difference in your life, it's not enough just to know it in your mind. You've got to believe it in your heart. Adrian Rogers, my mentor, used to say that most people will miss heaven by 18 inches from the distance from their head to their heart. So you can know about Jesus in your head, but that's not the same as believing in Jesus with your heart. And so this is not just something, this victory we're talking about, you just can't know it in your mind or receive it in your mind. You've got to believe it in your heart. So here's what he says in verse 11. He says, in the same way, count yourselves, we'll come back to that word in a minute, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the word for count, that word is a verb that, that is also translated as consider, or some of your translations will have reckon, reckon yourself dead to sin, okay? Now, I'm from the deep south. I prefer reckon, okay? That's just the way I, I, I prefer it. And, and, and I got to thinking, you know, is that really the word I want to use? And I just said to myself, I reckon not. So the, the word here, the word here is a much more precise definitive term than the word reckon. This word, by the way, if you're an accountant, you'll appreciate this. This word is an accounting term. And it literally means to put to one's account. Or the way we would say it today is count on it or bank on it. Now, what, what, what was Paul telling us? He said, look, I've already told you what you need to know in your mind. What, what do you need to know? You are dead to sin. You are free from sin. Now, I want you to believe it in your heart. Now, just know it in your mind. I want you to believe in your heart. I am dead to sin. I am free from sin. Now, you may say, well, why is that such a big deal? I mean, I just don't understand the real difference between knowing something in your mind and believing something in your heart. Okay, I'll tell you why. Real simple. You ready for this? And, and, and you all know this is true. We don't really practice and live what we know. We practice and live what we really believe. Now, I'll give you a great illustration. 
the Bible talks about tithing. And the Bible is very plain. The Bible's very specific. It is the only time, in fact, tithing is the only time where God ever says, put me to the test. In every other occasion, any other area of life, you know what God says? Don't test me. Don't you test me. You just take my word for what I'm going to tell you. You just believe it. You just do what I tell you to do. Don't test me. But when it comes to tithing, it's the only time in the Bible where God says, test me. You, I'm going to give you the right to tell me, okay, God, put up or shut up. And God says, if you will bring your tithe into the storehouse, I will honor it. I will bless it. I will do things for you that I would not do for you if you did not tithe. Now, You've heard me preach from this platform, and most every one of you, at least if you're a believer, you know your Bible, most every one of you know that in your mind. You know what God says about tithing, right? But I also know, because I know every church that I've ever pastored, every church there ever is, that over at least 50 to 60% of the church does not tithe. Most of you don't tithe. Well, why don't you tithe? Don't you know what the Bible says about tithing? Well, yeah. And then some of you would even say to me, and I, and I also believe it. No, you say you believe it. You don't believe it because you did your tithe. So there's a big difference between knowing something in your mind and believing something in your heart. You don't live and practice what you know. You live and practice what you really believe. And by the way, this word means you believe something in your heart so strongly, you're willing to stake your life on it. That's what it means. It means you turn your knowledge into belief. Let me give you one more illustration. Let's suppose, just as a gift, let's suppose I were to write you a check for, say, $500. Now, let's suppose that the only thing you have to go on as to whether or not that check is good is my word for it, okay? Let's say you don't even know me. You've never even met me. And just out of the blue, I just come up and give you a check for $500. And I say, look, if you'll take that check down to the bank, you're going to get your $500. I'm giving you my word. I've got the funds to cover that check. Now, you know what I've said to you. you. Even though you don't know me, you know what I've said to you. Well, this guy tells me he's got the money to cover those funds. You know that in your mind. But you don't cash the check. Then you won't get your money. But when you decide to get in your car, drive down to the bank, endorse the check, give it to that teller, here's what you're really saying. You're saying, you know what? I believe what you told me is true. I believe you've got the money to cover that check. Therefore, I'm going to cash that check. Big difference. There is a big difference between knowing something in your mind and believing something in your heart. When, when uh, I was telling my brother this uh, just a while ago, when I was a boy, some of you, a few of you remember my dad. When I was a boy, my dad went into partnership with, a, with another man and they bought a chicken farm. Now, to this day, it is one of the biggest mistakes and one of the worst purchases my dad ever made. And you say, well, why do you say that? Because I had to go to work on the chicken farm. Now, just out of curiosity, anybody here ever worked on a chicken farm? Anybody? Hold your hand up real high if you've worked on a chicken farm. Isn't this not the nastiest work in the world? I mean, I'm just telling you. It, it's just, I'd, rather be in, I'd, I'd rather be in prison in Iraq I really believe in working on a chicken farm. I mean, it's just, it is terrible. The only thing I've ever enjoyed less than working on a chicken farm was a colonoscopy. And that was a close second, okay? I mean, I'm telling you, it was just, it's just, working on a chicken farm is just horrific. Well, I will never forget the first time I was up at the chicken farm, and I'll never forget the first time that my dad took a chicken's head off. 
right? My dad tore this chicken's head off, and I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's really hilarious. But, but a chicken really does run around with his head taken off. How many of you have ever seen that? It's a shoulder behold. It really is cool to do. I mean, I wouldn't do it just to, be, just to see the chicken do it. But, you know, if, you, if you're into sadomasochism, it's something you might want to do on a Saturday afternoon. But my dad cut this chicken's head off, and that chicken began to run around with his head cut off. And, and I got to thinking about that. I remember a story I read. I read this story years ago. There was this little boy that grew up on a chicken farm. And he saw his dad cut off the head, the head of this chicken. He had never seen that before. His dad cut off the head of this chicken. And he watched that chicken start running around like crazy. Little, little, I think he's like six years old. And he said, Daddy, he said, why, why is that chicken running around like that? And, and uh, the daddy said, well, it's because I cut his head off and, and he's dead. Well, boy, he said, that, that boy's eyes got so big. He said, you mean that, that chicken's dead? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely, he's dead. He watched that chicken run around for about a minute. And he said, well, Dad. I got news for you. And his dad said, well, what's that? He said, he may be dead, but he doesn't believe it. <laughs> now, you are dead to sin if you are a follower of Jesus. But you've got to believe it. You can't just receive it in your mind. You've got to believe it in your heart. That at the moment you gave your life to Jesus, the old you died with him. Now, let me just stop because I'm ahead of you. I know what some of you are saying right now, and I get it, because I've said the same thing you'd say. You'd say, well, can I just be honest? Sure. I just, well, I don't feel like I'm dead to sin. Well, we're not talking about feelings. We're talking about facts. You know, if, if it's raining, I don't know if it is or not, but if it's a rainy day, you may not feel like it's raining, but if you walk outside, you'll believe it. You may not feel like or you may feel like that if you just quit showing up to work, you won't get fired. But if you quit showing up to work, you're going to get fired. Right? So it doesn't matter what you just know. You've got to believe it. Now, I know again, now you're asking another question. You said, okay, i got another question. So if I am dead to sin, why am I still being tempted to sin? Great question. If I'm dead to sin, why am I still being tempted to sin? Okay, because you misunderstood one thing I've said or you didn't hear exactly what I said. I've said, I don't know how many times in this message, you are dead to sin. Heard it a lot of times. Everybody got it? Have you heard me say one time in this message, sin is dead to you? No, because it's not. You're dead to sin. Sin is not dead to to you. But what I'm saying is you're dead to sin. You've got to believe it in your heart. You've got to know it in your mind. So when you receive it in your mind and you believe it in your heart, then you are ready to achieve victory by your will. Now, this is the way it works in every area of life. So this is nothing, you know, going to be brand new. When you know something is true, you know it's true. And you believe something is true. You're going to act like it is true. When you know it's true and you believe it's true, really believe it, you're going to act as if it's true. In other words, you know this. This is not, this is not pop psychology. It's the way we're wired. When I know what is right and I really believe what is right, then I'll do what's right. 
If I know what's right, believe what's right, I'll do what's right. All right, so what are we told to do? Now Paul gets real specific, verse 13. He says, do not offer any part of yourself, that's your body, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now, that word offer is used five times in this passage. Five times Paul uses that word, offer, 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 offer. And it means to yield. It means to surrender. It literally means to present as a sacrifice. Paul says, you need every day to present your body, and here's what he says, as instruments of righteousness. As instruments of righteousness. Not instruments of wickedness, but instruments of righteousness. Now, that word instrument has a double meaning. It can mean a tool that you build with, or it can mean a weapon that you fight with. Now, we're going to get down. We're going to get real practical right now. Here's the key to having victory over any sin in your life. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, your body is a tool, and your body is a weapon. Now, your body can be used as a tool for one of two things, either to build God's kingdom up or to tear down your life. Your body's a weapon. It can either be used to fight against sin and doing what's wrong, or you can use your body as a weapon to fight against righteousness and, and against uh, what you ought to do. So here's what Paul says. He's, once again, he says this. He says, look, I want you to call sin's bluff. Just call sin's bluff. I want you to offer every part of your body, which is the only thing sin can really use against you. And the only thing sin can really use in its service, it is your body. I want you to offer every part of your body for God's glory and for God's honor. All right, now I know you're saying, okay, but how do you do that? Well, guess what? It all comes back into this word we keep running into. What do you think that word is? Anybody want to guess? Grace. Everybody say that out loud. Grace. Remember, what's the series called? Real what? Grace. So how do you do that? Paul says, okay, hang on, I'll show you. He says, for sin shall no longer be your master. Well, how do you know that's true? Because, here's why. You are not under the law, but under, what's that word? Under grace. You're not under law. You are under grace. You just can't get away from grace as a believer in Jesus. Remember what we've been learning. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. You're under new ownership. You're under a new master. You are no longer under law. You are under grace. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're under grace. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you're under law. You say, okay, wait a minute. What is the difference? Here's the difference. If you're under the law, that is, if you're still trying to establish a relationship with God and get right with God and be right with God by keeping the law, obeying the commandments, doing your best, living a good life, Paul says, and he told us this last week, if that's the way you're going to try to get to God, I'll just try to be good enough for God, you're just going to wind up being a slave to sin. That's all that's going to happen to you. You're not going to, any, get, you're not going to get any closer to God. You're not going to be any closer to God. As a matter of fact, you're going to get even further away from God. Don't you say, why is that? Because let's go back, if you weren't here last week, real quick. Because the law was not just given to show us what we should do. You know why God gave us the law? He didn't just give us the law to show us what we could do or what we ought to do or what we should do. He actually gave us the law to show us what we can't do. 
I mean, can I ask you a simple question? Anybody here perfect? No. Anybody here kept all the commandments all the time, 24-7, as long as you've been alive? No. So you can't keep the law. No, I can't keep it. Well, that's why the law was given, to show you just what you proved is true. You can't do it. Because we've already seen, we've all sinned, we've all broken God's law. So here's what I want to tell you. If you're choosing, even after everything I'm going to tell you, if you still choose, I want to stay under the law, I'm going to try to make my own way, I'm going to try to earn my relationship with God, I'm going to, be try, I'm going to try to be so good, he can't help but accept me. If you're going to stay under the jurisdiction of sin, then for the rest of your life, you're going to be in handcuffs to sin. If you're going to be under the jurisdiction of the law, you're going to be in handcuffs to sin. But here's what happens. When grace becomes your master, you are set free. You say, how does grace set me free? Here's how. Grace not only frees us to do what we ought to do, grace gives us the power to do it. See, the law will tell you what to do, but the law can't empower you to do it. Grace will not only free you to do what you ought to do, it will give you the power to do it. With God's grace, you can rise up against sin. You take any sin right now you're in, you're, you're, that you're enslaved to. I mean, just pick it out. It doesn't matter. Just start naming them. Pornography, bitterness, lust, anger, impatience, greed, selfishness. You know what you can say right now with 100% with confidence? Because you receive it in your mind, because you believe it in your heart, because you're going to achieve it with your will. You can say right now, sitting in that chair where you're sitting, sin, pornography, bitterness, lust, anger, jealousy. I'm dead to you. I am free from you. I am no longer under the bondage of trying to keep the law, and you are no longer my master. I'm under grace. And by God's grace, I'm saying no to you. By God's grace, I'm saying yes to God. And right now, I am offering my body as a sacrifice to him. You can say that right now. Now, let me show you how this works. You cannot completely, sincerely, totally, honestly, you cannot offer your eyes as a sacrifice to God and look at pornography. You can't do those at the same time. You cannot get up in the morning and say, Lord, just for today, I am offering my mouth as a sacrifice to you and go out and start gossiping about other people or go out and start using profanity. You can't do that. You cannot offer your ears as a sacrifice to God and then go out and try to listen to all the false, malicious, untruths and gossip that you'd like to hear can't do it. When Jesus died on the cross, listen, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't just deal with sin. He dealt with the sinner. He didn't just forgive us. He made a new us. He didn't just pardon us and say, okay, you're free to go. You, you can leave the jail of sin. He said, look, I'm not only going to pardon you. I'm not only going to free you from this jail cell. I'm going to give you the power never to have to go back into it. I'm giving you freedom. I mean real freedom. You can rise up against sin. You say, okay, how do you do it? Remember, in your mind, you remember who you are. I'm a child of God. In your heart, you believe what your mind knows is true. I'm dead to sin and I'm free from sin. And then with your body and your will, you act like it. I am not going to offer my body as a sacrifice to wickedness anymore. I'm going to offer my body up to righteousness. So let me just 
get you to think about this. Real, real, real true story, historical illustration. I thought it's so great. Most of you remember when you were in school studying about the Black Plague. E- even to this day, it's one of the worst diseases that ever hit planet Earth. One of the deadliest diseases. Let me tell you how deadly it was. The Black Plague, now think about this. It killed 60% of the population of Europe. Now just think about a disease today that, killed 60, that would kill 60% of the United States of America. That'd be over what? 180 million people, 190 million people. But it killed 60%. It killed 50 million people. It took 300 years. But that plague finally reached this quaint little village in Eom, England. A, a tailor, what happened was a tailor unpacked a parcel that was shipped from London. And when he opened it, out flew these plague-infested fleas. It was spread by fleas. The moment he opened it, the whole village knew we're doomed. In four days, that tailor was dead. The entire village thought they were doomed. Well, that village did an unbelievable thing. In one of the most unselfish acts, I guess, ever recorded by any group of people in the history of the world, that village decided to self-quarantine themselves. That, that village decided nobody gets in and nobody gets out. We're not going to let this spread to anybody else anywhere at all. So all everyone could do now was just wait and die. That's it. But to their amazement, one year later, over 50% of the village lived. As a matter of fact, it's not that they got sick and survived they didn't even get sick, over half. They, they resisted the disease, but how did they do it? I mean, everybody had touched it. Everybody had breathed it. One mother buried six children and her husband in one week, but the mother lived. The grave digger who buried hundreds of diseased corpses, he finally died from it. But over 50% of the village, they survived. How did it happen? What was the explanation? Well, because of modern technology, Scientists went back, and they discovered the answer. It's really incredible. Do you know why over half of that village lived? It was because of their ancestors. Through DNA studies of their descendants, scientists found that these people had a disease-blocking gene they were born with. And, and it mobilized their white blood cells to prevent that bacteria from ever gaining entrance into, that, into their body. In other words, the plague could touch them, but the plague could not kill them. And it was all because of what they had inherited from their ancestors. Now, here, here's what I want to share with you. Listen to this. They didn't get to pick their ancestors. But we get to pick our Heavenly Father. I'm going to tell you something right now that puts chill bumps on me while I'm telling you this. You ready? You can change your spiritual DNA. You can change your spiritual DNA. You don't have to be what you've always been. You don't have to be what your dad was. You don't have to be what your mom was. You don't have to be what everybody else has been. You can literally change your spiritual DNA. You can change your family tree. You can go from being in Adam to in 
Jesus. And when you do, here's what happens. When you go from being in Adam to in Jesus, when you allow God to change your spiritual DNA, here's what he does. Your nature becomes his nature. Your death becomes his death. Your life becomes his life. His life becomes your life. See, sin may affect you, but it will, sin may affect you, but it will never infect you. It may attack you, but it will never permanently defeat you. It may contact you, but it can never condemn you. And I am telling you today, I am telling you, it's up to you now whether you receive it in your mind, believe it in your heart, and achieve it with your will. I am telling every one of you today, in the name and in the power of Jesus, you can rise up against sin and you can win your battle. Amen. Well, let's pray together.